sustaining peace requires ongoing partnerships between the UN host governments, member states, regional actors, international financial institutions, and other stakeholders. And this is really especially true in the context of transition processes. Conversations like this one make me hopeful that different actors are starting to plan much earlier and also, even more important, more jointly. Welcome to this Peace Lab podcast on transitions from peacekeeping to peacebuilding. Based on interviews with experts and senior policymakers from the UN, the EU, the World Bank, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Germany, this podcast is about key challenges and lessons learned by the international community on what happens when a peacekeeping mission withdraws from a country and is replaced by peacebuilding efforts. The process that is referred to as a transition from a peacekeeping mission to peacebuilding. The podcast is produced by me, Marie Wagner, and Sarah Brockmeier from the Global Public Policy Institute, the GPPI, in Berlin, in cooperation with the German Federal Foreign Office as contribution to the World Bank's Virtual Fragility Forum 2020. It is also part of the Peace Lab project, which we run at GPPI to foster debate on conflict prevention, stabilization and peacebuilding, and which is supported by the German Federal Foreign Office. UN peacekeeping missions are designed to help countries navigate the difficult path from conflict to peace. In spring 2020, 81,203 UN peacekeepers are stationed in 13 peacekeeping operations. They protect civilians, prevent crises, monitor ceasefires and complete countless other tasks. UN peacekeeping missions are merely a temporary response. The missions want to stabilize the situation to the point that national institutions are able to provide key services and security to their population, supported by peacebuilding actors that replace the peace operation. While some of the current UN peacekeeping missions have been deployed for decades, all missions will eventually need to draw down. The question of how to adequately prepare for transitions in a timely manner has become ever more pressing in recent years. This podcast takes stock of what the international community has learned over the past decades on what makes a transition from peacekeeping to peacebuilding more likely to succeed. In part one, the episode that you are listening to right now, we do three things. First, we look at what transitions are actually about and why this is an increasingly burning topic. Second, we will talk about lessons learned from past transitions. And third, we zoom in to talk about three specific challenges that relate to the responsibilities of key international actors and donors that we have interviewed for this podcast. These three challenges are, first, coherence and partnerships, Second, joint strategies and analyses. And third, avoiding financing gaps. Hearing from interview partners from the UN, the EU, the World Bank and Germany on these three issues, we will learn about the role of those different organizations, what progress has been made and where some work remains to be done. In the next episode, we discuss what it might look like to apply those lessons learned to a concrete example, to one of the biggest UN peacekeeping missions the United Nations Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or short, MONUSCO. 
We very much hope you will listen to the second part as well. For now, in this first episode, you will meet four senior policymakers. Russell Nekombe, who chairs the UN Transitions Project, Franck Bousquet, the Senior Director of the World Bank's Fragility, Conflict and Violence Group, Hilde Hardeman, who heads the Foreign Policy Instrument Service of the European Commission, and Rüdiger König, who is the Director General for Crisis Prevention, Stabilization, Post-Conflict Peacebuilding and Humanitarian Assistance of the German Federal Foreign Office. Lastly, Transitions expert Daniel Forti will be guiding us through this episode. He is a senior policy analyst at the Center for Peace Operations of the International Peace Institute, the IPI. Based on his research, you will particularly hear from him during the first half of the episode. With that said, let's get started. What are transitions about and why is it so important to take stock of lessons learned right now? We've seen that UN peacekeeping missions, whether they've been in a country for 10 years or 20 years, the process in which they reconfigure, they draw down and exit, in many ways represents the convergence of a lot of different factors and priorities that the current UN system is focusing on. The past two years, of the UN system has seen a wide range of operational reforms and institutional reform. The three big ones are the reform of the peace and security architecture, the reform of the UN development system, and the UN uh, management system reforms. Daniel Forti of the International Peace Institute in New York City researches transition processes from peacekeeping to peacebuilding. He explained why peacekeeping transitions matter. The overarching goal is to help the UN achieve better integration, to, to help how it improves and when it has less resources, and to really make it more efficient, effective, and responsive to the broader range of, of contexts in which the UN operates across the world. The, the UN Security Council over the past five to ten years, ha has placed a, a greater political and financial pressures on UN peacekeeping. Some of this translates to how well they perform, how well they deliver, and how well they account for what they're doing. But it's also a bigger push for missions that have been in countries for many years to either deliver on the political objectives that the Security Council members have for it, or to find a way to, to have those missions exit. And, and we see that with some of the more recent transition experiences, which were to some degree prompted by budget pressures, but were also the product of reflections that these missions weren't helping the UN deliver on their political and peace and security objectives. So within this context, transitions have become much more popular amongst the UN system and amongst UN member states over the past three or four years. Historically, and really up until 2010, 2011, peacekeeping transitions were purely about closing down missions. There wasn't as much thinking about integration and about what this meant for the UN moving forward in that country. We started seeing shifts with how the UN drew down in Sierra Leone and Timor-Leste, 
But really, the the convergence of the closure of three different peacekeeping missions between 2016 and 2018 put this issue at, at the forefront of everyone's minds. And those were Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia, and Haiti. And each of those missions had been in those countries for about a decade. So because you had three missions closing down simultaneously, it became a very difficult concept for the UN to ignore. UN Secretary General Gutierrez has consequently made transitions a priority topic amongst sort of his policy conversations amongst UN leadership and throughout the UN system. So in recent years, the UN has attached much more importance to reflecting on and preparing for transitions. In 2014, it put together the interagency UN Transitions Project, Since then, its team and the relevance of its work are growing. One of the co-chairs of the Transitions Project Steering Committee is Rosalina Combe. She is also the Deputy Director of the Policy and Mediation Division in the UN's Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, or short, DPPA. She explained how the project started and which three areas they are focusing on today. In 2014, uh, the UN, recognizing the various challenges that it has, both internally but also in dealing with its host countries uh, or in dealing with UN mission transitions, uh, decided to put together a UN transitions project which brings together the Department of uh, Political and Peacebuilding Affairs, uh, the Department of uh, Peace Operations, their Development Coordination Office and the UN Development Program to work together to enhance how the UN and its partners plan and manage transitions. And we have been doing this through this project, which I co-manage with my colleagues, through FAST, providing direct operational support to our colleagues in the field who need it. And we do this through deploying transition specialists who are sent to UN missions or offices of resident coordinators to support them in their planning for transitions. The second area that we've been focusing on is looking at what are the funding gaps? What are the financing issues? How do we get together to at least address those issues that relate to the financing of our operations? And we've been working together with OECD on a project on financing UN transitions and working closely with our colleagues from the Peace Building Fund to see how we can find innovative ways of financing the transitions. And I think the third and, you know, really critical part that the project has been doing is really continuing its engagement with member states, both at the Security Council and the General Assembly, to raise the issues regarding these transitions and the challenges we face and the need for their support, but also ensuring national ownership by working with host countries. Both the UN and member states have recently attached more importance to planning ahead for transitions. Before hearing about the key challenges, we wanted to know, what does success look like with transitions? Daniel Fordy said it is often hard to define success. You know, those are long-term processes, so it's hard to say within two to three years of a peacekeeping mission's closure that the UN presence in the country was a success, that the UN mission achieved all its goals, and that the country has ultimately had a successful transition. Daniel Forty explained that, first, it is not that easy to pinpoint the exact moment of transition, since it's rather a process. 
Even years after the withdrawal of a peacekeeping mission, the countries can still be in a transitional period. Second, keeping peace and other objectives of these missions are extremely context-specific and are long-term goals, which is why it can take several years before one can see the impact. But the transition expert did suggest a definition of short-term success. I think the most important barometer of success is the national institutions reassume the protection responsibilities, responsibility for political stability and governance and development priorities. With that definition of success in mind, however hard long-term success might be to define and measure, what are the key challenges for transitions today? While there are many potential spoilers of the transition process, Daniel Forti specifically touched upon two points. The first one is politics within the Security Council. UN peacekeeping transitions are ultimately political exercises, and the Security Council, with its mandate over international peace and security and the design and conduct of UN peacekeeping operations, they ultimately bear responsibility for how those processes unfold. Now, we know very well that the Council is not a monolith. It's 15 member states, all with very different interests, resources, and objectives considering a given country or region. And as much as we'd like to think that those different political agendas or interests can be put aside when looking at how a peacekeeping transition can unfold, the reality is those national interests ultimately impact the compromises that end up in a peacekeeping mandate or in a long-term vision for how a transition process unfolds. Diverging interests of the UN Security Council members often particularly matter in two areas, says Daniel Forty. First, when discussing if a peacekeeping mission should leave at an agreed-upon end date, or rather a specific end state, envisioning a certain progress, reform or demonstration of stability. Second, when discussing if benchmarks for the withdrawal should serve as an orientation, or as a mandatory requirement. Apart from that, he also mentioned a second difficulty for transition planning. The second potential spoiler and pitfall is political upheaval and significant changes in a country's political environment. These transitions don't occur in vacuums, and, and as a result, there are instances where changes in a political situation can positively or negatively impact the direction of a transition. To make matters more complicated, future transitions will be even more difficult to address than transitions in the past. Daniel Forty explained that the current situations that peacekeeping operations try to address are more complex. According to his research, there are three significant differences. I think in some ways the peacekeeping transitions in Liberia, in Haiti, in Cote d'Ivoire, they represent more straightforward cases in terms of the conditions in which peacekeeping operations are, are situated and what the implications are for when they're asked to change or ultimately reduce their presence or even leave. The first big one is that we're, we're seeing an era where political settlements in countries that are deeply divided by you know, difficult political challenges of, of leadership, of inclusion, of identity, of, you know, power and resource sharing, it's becoming more and more difficult for these political settlements to be achieved and to be sustained. Peacekeeping missions, first and foremost, have the political orientation to help national actors reach a peace agreement or to 
implement peace agreements or to create the conditions where these processes can be undertaken. So looking into the future, when you have a mission like Mali or even MONUSCO in the DRC, these political settlements are are fragile at best. And as a result, that makes the process of reconfiguring and, and diminishing UN presences on the ground all the more complex. Second and equally related, the the protection challenges uh, for civilians are increasingly difficult. The third major issue is that we're we're seeing more and more stresses on UN peacekeeping as a mechanism to respond to conflict. I think we're past the era where peacekeeping missions are seen as the first and ideal tool by the international community to collectively respond to national political crises and security threats. Despite this dire outlook, there is some hope, Daniel Fordy said. Even though those aspects will make future mission transitions far more difficult and complex, there is a little bit of optimism. There's now much more critical thinking within the UN and amongst UN member states about all these complex issues related to peacekeeping transitions. We want to keep that cautious optimism in mind for the rest of the episode and now discuss some of the lessons learned from past transitions. But to first summarize what we have heard so far. Peacekeeping transitions are challenging processes and they are likely to get harder not easier, with more complex missions and conflicts. We heard that the UN increased its attention to transitions and attaches more importance to the issue. Transitions are highly political. One key challenge is the politics in and of the Security Council. We also learned that there is no one-size-fits-all approach and future transitions might be even more difficult, since the conditions in which they will take place will be different. Current peacekeeping missions are addressing more complicated circumstances, such as localized political violence and more complex conflicts, which makes the protection of civilians increasingly difficult. Planning is also difficult because the political environment in the country at hand can, of course, always change. Despite all these challenges and the differences between past and current missions, there are lessons learned from past peacekeeping transitions that experts and policymakers have identified. Daniel Fordy, Russell Anacombe and the German diplomat Rüdiger König spoke to us about those lessons. Transitions expert Daniel Forti and his colleagues identified four key lessons learned from past peacekeeping transitions. The first lesson, you need a shared political vision amongst all relevant actors involved. There needs to be a shared political vision about what the UN transition is going to look like in terms of how does the engagement shift in terms of UN priorities, responsibility for delivering on those priorities, and ultimately the trajectory of how the UN reconfiguration is going to go in order to support a truly nationally owned vision for long-term development, governance, and peace. Second, you need national ownership of the process. Peacekeeping missions are there because there are political crises or because the state institutions aren't able to effectively protect civilians. But they're only sort of temporary measures. And, and so there needs to be a, a consensus of what the priorities are, who's going to benefit from that inherently political and administrative process, 
and and who's going to be supporting, whether it's bilateral actors, whether it's the UN, whether it's regional or sub-regional organizations. This needs to be articulated and debated within a society. It, it can't just be the UN interfacing with government institutions. National ownership is an essential part of this. The third lesson, there need to be shared planning processes within the UN system, which are field-led. The third major lesson is the way that the UN as an organization plans and executes transitions and reconfigurations. UN peacekeeping transitions used to be only about peacekeeping and only about exiting. But now we understand that the entire UN system, whether it's the UN leadership on the mission side, whether it's the, the UN country team, which can comprise anywhere between 15 to 25 agencies, funds and programs that have their own individual office in a country, the way they come together in the planning process long before a mission is actually expected to leave how well the planning processes are responsive and contextualized within political and security developments in the country, and how well these planning processes are reflected throughout the UN system. There's been a renewed focus about how to do this planning process so that it's field-led, it's contextualized, it's responsive to changing dynamics throughout the country. And the fourth lesson that is relevant for future transitions Actors must be flexible to adjust to unforeseen changes. The last lesson I think that really influences all of these is the need for the UN to be flexible during transition processes and to be able to adapt to unforeseen changes. Transitions are political processes first and foremost. They're not only bureaucratic you know, exercises. They really deal with the political and security and economic issues that affect the country. Those four lessons also came up in the conversations with experts from the international organizations, and they become ever more significant in times of the global COVID-19 pandemic. Russell and Nakombe specifically underlined the importance of flexible response planning and joint analysis in this context. To be able to be flexible to respond to pandemics such as COVID-19, we focus a lot on early and joint planning and analysis. We have seen over the years that knowing the context is key because when you know the context, then you're able to respond to unforeseen changes. Once you have solid joint analysis of the linkages between the various risks and the various drivers of conflict, then it helps us to be able to address these issues and ad address the unexpected changes that we might have. You may recall that we were also dealing with the transition in Liberia in a context of Ebola. Russell and Akombe also emphasized the importance of national ownership of a host country. She stressed that international actors should strengthen national ownership and explained what the UN can do to support it. For us as the UN, we look at national ownership in a transition process as critical because, again, the main goal of a UN transition is to ensure that the host nation is better equipped to consolidate peace-building gains, to ensure that we have national buy-in and leadership, and to make sure that the process is sustainable and fully aligned to national priorities. We've been seeing this happening, for instance, in the case of Sudan, which is our latest, where The Security Council mandate on transition is something that has involved very close engagement with the Sudanese government to ensure that the mandate that is being put in place by the Security Council is one that articulates 
what the country wants to do. Because we all are external actors. We cannot succeed if the national actors do not own the process, if they do not see it as their process, whereby we as the UN, whether it's the Security Council or the Peace Building Commission or the UN Secretariat, are only providing a support role towards them really meeting their peace building priorities, uh, the political priorities of the country. That's why our encouragement as a secretariat and Secretary General Guterres has been really fantastic about this, of emphasizing the need for national ownership, for national consultations, for engagement with the national authorities from the very beginning, not as an afterthought, but as part and parcel of the process of transition. The Peace Building Commission is an intergovernmental advisory body that supports peace efforts in conflict-affected countries. Its member states are elected from the UN General Assembly, the Security Council, and the Economic and Social Council. The Peace Building Commission also includes the most important countries in terms of financial and troop contribution to the UN. Rudiger König, the Director General for Crisis Prevention, Stabilization, Post-Conflict Peacebuilding and Humanitarian Assistance at the German Federal Foreign Office, agrees that host government leadership is indispensable. In addition, when reflecting on lessons learned on peacekeeping transitions from the perspective of a bilateral donor, he emphasized the important role of international preparation as well as the relevance of secure and flexible funding. Peacekeeping missions are the most robust multilateral instrument to rein in conflict and violence. Thus, we must do our utmost to secure their pacifying impact for the long term. So in my view, to be successful in that endeavor is first host government leadership, which is already difficult enough. Secondly, a strong international community support. And third, to secure flexible funding to adapt to the changing circumstances which we all witness whenever we are engaged in peacekeeping operations. And let me add a fourth one, which is a somewhat often not spoken uh, or not mentioned element, and that is preparation. It is important that we prepare for this process, the drawdown and eventual closure of a UN peace operation or any other peace operation does not happen unexpectedly, um, unlike crisis or unforeseen shocks. Therefore, we have a timeline for this preparation. We may have even years to draw up plans that include all stakeholders. And more often uh, than not, we are starting way too late to come up with that preparatory phase. And an ideal transition would bring together all these elements in a context-appropriate process and configuration. Listening to these experts, we now know that transitions have become more important and will be even more complex in the future. But there are key lessons that can be drawn from past transitions. They point to a number of to-dos for the UN and the international community as a whole to ensure successful transitions. We heard, first, national ownership and host government leadership is important, also going beyond government institutions, including host country communities. Second, key national and international actors need to share a political vision of what comes after the UN peacekeeping mission leaves. 
Third, for that, shared planning processes and preparation is key. Fourth, all actors need to be flexible throughout the process. And fifth, secure and flexible funding is essential. We will be able to discuss some of these lessons learned in more detail in the context of the DRC in the next episode of this podcast. This includes the importance of national ownership and leadership. For the remainder of this episode, though, we want to focus on three concrete topics that relate to the preparedness of the international community for transitions. Having spoken to senior policymakers from the UN, the EU, the World Bank and Germany for this podcast, this next part of this episode will take a closer look at three challenges that relate to the lessons learned that we have just heard about. The first is the coherence among the approaches of different international actors and the importance of partnerships. Second, the question on how to arrive at joint strategies and analysis. And third, the issue of avoiding financing gaps. Let's start with the challenge of forming partnerships between different international actors and pursuing a coherent approach. Transitions expert Daniel Forti explained why this is a challenge to tackle in the first place. Maintaining coordination and coherence between the UN and a host of other bilateral or regional actors is an ongoing challenge. And, and I think on a positive note, the UN, whether at the member state level or at the operational level under the Secretary General, openly acknowledge the importance of these organizations in providing political support, in providing peacebuilding support. I think the challenge is, you know, every country and regional situation is different. You have a different balance of political interests. You have different relative weights of these institutions and, and different priorities of these institutions. I think another area of support is closer cooperation between the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, and bilateral partners. Close cooperation between all international actors is really important, and, and that can be done through bilateral engagements, through, through donor conferences, but the process of Early cooperation and, and consistent dialogue is really the foundational step to, to not necessarily resolve all these challenges, but to mitigate the effects of long-term financial issues as much as possible. With that in mind, how do the policymakers from the UN, the EU, the World Bank and Germany see the challenge of partnerships? We asked them how they understand their respective roles, what their comparative advantage is in the context of a peacekeeping transition, and what their organizations are doing to address the challenge of achieving coherence between partners. Rosalind Akombe from the UN Transitions Project agreed that partnerships are extremely important. She explained why. Sustaining peace requires ongoing partnerships between the UN host governments, member states, regional actors, international financial institutions and other stakeholders. And this is really especially true in the context of transition processes where these actors really play a critical role in supporting uh, peace-building priorities beyond the life of the mission. It's important for us as the UN to continue proactively engaging these actors at every stage of the transition planning. I cannot overemphasize the role of the Peace Building Commission in really bringing together 
not just the UN actors, not just the UN system, but everybody else, the African Union, the national actors, ECOWAS, in cases uh, of West Africa, we have seen the Peace Building Commission really play a critical role in bringing the UN system together. We saw this in Liberia with the Liberia Peace Building Plan. We're seeing the PBC again being the integrative, I may use that term, of bringing the UN system and our partners, the World Bank, uh, the African Development Bank, and others together as we discuss uh, the transition in Guinea-Bissau and other places. So, so we see the UN playing a convening role. We see the UN being able to bring partners together to avoid divergences in how we understand and respond to conflict dynamics, which we know very well have a negative impact on collective approaches if we don't do it and if we don't forge a common political strategy together. Rosalind Ekombe also explained what she sees as the role for the UN in comparison to other international actors, including the EU and the World Bank. We see the UN as a global body. We don't see ourselves as being in competition with the EU or being in competition with the African Union or being in competition with the World Bank and other bodies. We see the UN playing a convening role because we are the only organization that has all the 193 member states who have a mandate to work on the political issues. So we see that we take that role seriously at the country level as a convener of the international community. And that includes the EU. We see that as a complementary role, everybody playing a different role, but leading to the same goal. And that's how it should be probably not the case in, in every place, but in most cases, that's how we play the convening role, with the EU obviously having more operational and funding capacity than most of the agencies' funds and programs, and with the IFIs really having a very clear role in terms of their relationship with the member states and budgets and uh, funding that they are able to provide, which, of course, the UN can never compete with in terms of the amount of money available to it. Russell and Ekombe mentioned, among others, the EU as an actor with substantive operational and funding capacities. We spoke to Hilda Hardemann, who is the head of the European Commission's Service for Foreign Policy Instruments, and asked her where she sees the EU's role in transition processes. We look at a transition towards a more self-reliant society and state as the ultimate goal of a complex and really long process. All actions need to go in lockstep to put local communities and national governments at the helm. And to work towards this, we do not really need to know when a UN peacekeeping mission will end, because we know that transition will happen and that we must work towards this common goal before, during and after the presence of a peacekeeping mission using all the tools we have, working together with others. Um, the EU also uses a model that puts national governments at the helm of development. Our EU delegations, which we have uh, in many, many countries in the world, form an extensive diplomatic and cooperation network. And then to make sure that we use our assets to the best effect, we work closely together with others. And I would start by mentioning the United Nations. Hilda Hardemann sees three advantages that the EU has in comparison to other actors. To start with, that within one organization, we combine expertise and funding for diplomatic, humanitarian, development 
and peace and security action. Then secondly, and I think we can really be very proud of that, although it's not the work of our generation and we can never take it for granted, but the EU is and remains a credible peace actor and can help bring together political positions and financing from many actors. And then third aspect that I would like to highlight is that we are present in country before and during any UN peacekeeping mission. And we are there also afterwards. We are there to stay and we continue the work. To underline this third point, Hilde Hardeman specifically mentioned the EU's military operation in the Central African Republic in 2014 and 2015 as an example. This CSDP mission was deployed to help stabilize the situation in the capital Bangui after a political crisis. The UN mission MINUSCA was then able to take over from the EU's mission in 2015. Similar to Rosalind Akombe, Hilde Hardeman also highlighted the EU's role as a convening power. The EU has convening power. And because of how complex transitions are, streamlined action really remains one of the biggest challenges. So one aspect is joint analysis. This is the basis for joint work. This is the starting point. And there we have, for example, our partnership with United Nations and the World Bank. Next to the EU, the World Bank is one of those international actors that can bring large-scale financing efforts to the table in a transition context. Franck Bousquet is the Senior Director of the Fragility, Conflict and Violence Group, which recently launched its strategy on fragility, conflict and violence, the FCV strategy. He explained why the new strategy matters in transitions. The new FCV strategy really helped to position even better the bank, uh, and I would say the World Bank Group, with our sister organization IFC and MIGA dealing with the private sector to act in a fragile context uh, such as transitions. Tackling fragility, conflict and violence, which we refer as FCV, is at the very core of our mission to end extreme poverty and boost shared prosperity. And what has happened over the past few years is that the bank has progressively accumulated experience dealing not only on reconstructions, but shifting into conflict, crisis, and more recently as well on the prevention agenda, which is so important. So the strategy aims to provide guidance about what does it mean to be working in the FCV space? How is it different from working in more stable environment? We asked Franck Bousquet how he defines the role of the World Bank in transition contexts. He emphasizes that in partnership with the UN, the World Bank can help strengthen host country systems early on. The cooperation with the United Nations and the World Bank is extremely important, especially during transition. And there has been a lot of progress actually over the past few years in terms of cooperation between the bank and the UN in FCV impacted countries. So why? Because in addition to our long-term efforts from the bank side to build the state legitimacy and capacity, we are also partnering with the UN to assess macroeconomic fiscal impact of peacekeeping transition. And here I can give you maybe some two concrete examples. In Somalia, for instance, we have partnered with UNSOM, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Somalia, to assist the federal government in evaluating the fiscal sustainability of the security sector against the backdrop of reduction in peacekeeping force led by the African Union Mission in Somalia. So here we are already collaborating on one of very important aspects of a transition, namely the task of strengthening 
host country system well ahead of time. That obviously helps to strengthen the presence and the legitimacy of the state in the eyes of the citizens. So partnership is not only essential because of our different mission, but also partnership is scaling up in those countries, allowing us to work in area where we were not necessarily as present a few years ago. More specifically, as Frank Bousquet pointed out, the World Bank can partner with other financial actors to provide technical support to public financial management. We had a very good meeting in October 2019 as part of the World Bank IMF annual meeting with discussion with several finance ministers from countries that are or have been hosting peacekeeping missions. And the importance of partnership became quite clear during the discussions, in particular, making sure that development, humanitarian and security efforts are fully aligned, especially during these critical and fragile moments of transition. So the World Bank Group, therefore, has played an important role to play in continuing to provide the technical support, for instance, on the public financial management to the security sectors. So close coordination at the country level is extremely important. Partnerships and close coordination are important. The policymakers we spoke to from the UN, the EU and the World Bank very much agree on that. The same is the case for Rudiger König from the German Federal Foreign Office. Using the concrete example of the ongoing transition context in Sudan and UNITAMS, the UN Integrated Transition Assistance Mission in Sudan, Rudiger König summarized the role that Germany can play in transitions as a bilateral donor and currently as a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. Germany promotes a comprehensive forward-looking approach to transitions. For example, during our tenure as non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, we strengthened the linkages between the Peacebuilding Commission and the UN Security Council. We try to act as a convener and bring together relevant actors early on in the process. We also consistently advocate for thorough planning in these forums. And we are one of these, this is not my term, champions for transition within the Action uh, for Peacekeeping initiative by the United Nations. We also strengthen peacekeeping politically and financially in order to sustain peace through, just as an example, our support of the United Nations Peacebuilding Fund and the fund is active in a number of transition contexts like Sudan, Haiti and Congo. One of our central goals since the Sudanese revolution was to assist Sudan's democratic transition with an integrated special political mission dedicated to transition assistance. On 4th of June, we have reached our goal, UNITAMS, which was created by unanimous decision of the Council. And this is an example of very practically foreign policy and action of Germany in transition processes, because the strategic objectives of UNITAMS is a political transition, democratic governance and protection and promotion of human rights, peace processes and implementation of future peace agreements, peace building, civilian protection and rule of law, and mobilization of economic and development assistance and coordination of humanitarian assistance. Rüdiger König further explained that all those challenges can only be addressed through pragmatic and joint approaches. If I look at the Sudan mission, which I have just laid out, all of these tasks are enormous. 
and the United Nations mission cannot deliver on those objectives alone. A diversity of perspectives facilitates greater adaptability to the context, even though we know inclusiveness can be challenging. But listening to all voices ensures gaps, needs and priorities are addressed, which gives us strategic flexibility later. There is a point I would like to make, and that is about different mandates that can present an obstacle to joint action in transitions, and headquarters often fail to account for the limitations on the ground. So what we need is to be pragmatic with institutional and political constraints. We must forge networks through planning, so we can later cooperate and overcome structural obstacles in the field. Conversations like this one make me hopeful um, that different actors are starting to plan much earlier and also, even more important, more jointly. We see a network developing actually to address all these uh, matters in better cooperation of institutions on the ground of creating these common strategies and uh, putting the strengths of the various institutions of the international community to achieve better results. With that said about the German role and emphasizing that there has been a lot of progress on cooperation between different international actors, Rudiger König still sees a lot of work for international actors to improve their cooperation on transition planning. The international community so far has more often than not more or less acted in a way where we use all these institutions but not interconnected. So they are all present in every crisis situation but not interconnected, not working towards a common goal yet. But we have to simply transform our strategic intelligence that we have gathered from what has happened in the past in the uh, lessons learned processes we have all been going through into operational measures uh, taken by not only the institutions of the international community but also of the countries who are members and who are, are more or less the backbone of these international institutions. I think we made a lot of progress, this I have to underline, but we are not there yet. It's a process still ongoing. Having heard from policymakers from the UN, the EU, the World Bank and Germany on coherence and partnerships, what have we learned? Perhaps unsurprisingly, all of them think that coherence and partnerships are vital to the success of peacekeeping transitions. They all see complementary roles for each other and particular comparative advantages for their respective organizations. The UN as we heard from Rosalind Nkombe, is the only organization that represents 193 member states. The EU, as Hilde Hardemann outlined, is a large donor that can be on the ground before, during and after a peacekeeping mission is deployed, and can bring a full spectrum of military, development and humanitarian tools to the table. The World Bank, as Frank Bousquet emphasized, is a key actor for providing the financial means for strengthening host country systems. The policymakers from the UN, the EU and Germany also all emphasized that they see their organization as having a convening role in bringing actors and partners together. So what we heard has emphasized two aspects. 
that each of those organizations can bring something to the table and that they have complementary roles, but also that close and continued coordination and joint preparation for transitions is essential. And there is still work to be done to improve that cooperation and coordination. This brings us to the next challenge that we wanted to zoom into, the need for joint strategies and analyses. If international policymakers agree that coordination and coherence are important, the question remains, how do they ensure that coherence? A key element of this is having joint strategies and sharing analyses of the situation. Daniel Forti's research shows that the importance of common long-term political strategies within different bodies of the UN for transitions and peacekeeping missions. Adopting shared and long-term political strategies is ultimately at the heart of successful transitions. The challenge is that dynamics on the ground and within a host country can change rapidly and that various member states, whether on the Security Council or within the neighborhood or those that have an interest in that country, can often have different, if not competing, political interests. Some of the solutions include closer articulation and cooperation within the Security Council through the peacekeeping mandates or a consistent dialogue amongst themselves or with national actors. The peacekeeping mandates set the rules of engagement and the objectives of any mission and how those are designed in terms of establishing priorities, setting out responsibilities and coordinating tasks is one way that we can articulate what these long-term strategies look like. You know, the other way is that you can have the national actors themselves undertake a process of articulating priorities, whether through a peace building or a development plan. And that's really important for two reasons. One, it, it sets a political vision forward. And, and second, it also helps foster a shared understanding of what the challenges are and what are some of the ways to resolve them. With that in mind, we asked the different policymakers about the tools they use for analysis and planning for transitions. They all consider them crucial, but it becomes clear that there is not one single tool that they all use jointly. Rosalind Akombe presented the key tool for planning and analysis that the UN is using in cooperation with national governments since the UN conducted internal reforms in 2019. The UN Sustainable Development Cooperation Framework. This framework is embedded in the 2030 Agenda of the Sustainable Development Goals and provides the foundation for cooperation between the UN agencies, UN funds, country teams and programs, and, where there is one, peacekeeping missions. This planning and implementation instrument aims at supporting the host country's vision by UN actions. For the first time, there is consensus in the system, whether it's on the peace and security side or the development side, that we have one frame, a planning tool, one framework that we're using, which is the primary instrument and framework where we anchor everything we're doing. This has not always been the case. That is the primary instrument that is now being used where all missions, all countries, UN country teams are asked to contribute to the common country assessment that leads to that cooperation framework. So that is our main uh, framework that we use. But there are other mechanisms and initiatives that, uh, that we have to ensure that we have integrated analysis and planning in mission transitions. For instance, we have 
the Secretary General's planning directive that he issued in 2019 that ensures that uh, we all have roadmaps for transition, making sure that transition planning is part and parcel of our processes from the very beginning. We have the Action for Peacekeeping, A4P, which renews mutual political commitments to peacekeeping uh, operations and which is something that member states have signed onto and which aims to strengthen national ownership and capacity and ensure integrated analysis and planning and seek also greater coherence among UN system actors. Maybe the last of those frameworks that I would like to mention is the Integrated Assessment and Planning Policy, which we are working on revising to ensure that it incorporates the new reality of the development system reforms and the peace and security reforms. Rüdiger König from the German Federal Foreign Office agrees that joint strategies, analysis and planning are important to ensure a successful transition. He also highlighted another tool that the UN, the World Bank and the EU have used to jointly assess the situation outside of transition contexts. The Recovery and Peacebuilding Assessment, or short, RPBA. Transitions are a joint political and developmental challenge for the international community and the host countries. They are not internal, obscure and highly technical UN processes, but politics is involved. And they are not merely a benchmark box-checking exercise for the host country, but host country progress is critical to success. Therefore, we believe a joint strategy is vital to effectively secure the gains of peacekeeping missions and quickly consolidate the peace, which is an inherent political process. Recovery and peacebuilding assessments are one tool that have been undertaken jointly by the UN, the World Bank and the EU in other contexts. They are driven by the host country and have been effective in forging joint narratives on gaps, needs and priorities. RPBAs have so far not been used for joint assessments and planning and transitions. Germany suggests that these assessments, or something similar, could also be applied in transition contexts. Hilde Hardemann from the EU explained where RPBAs originated. She told us that the devastating tsunami that hit Southeast Asia in December of 2004 led to a crucial shift in the international approach. All international actors realized they should have engaged more jointly and that there was no coordinated response. Since then, according to Hilde Hademann, the partnership with the World Bank, the UN and the governments concerned aims at a closer collaboration for a common analysis. She explained in more detail how the RPBAs work, how host governments are involved in the analysis processes and, from the perspective of the EU, the benefits of using them. What these um, recovery and peace building assessments do is that they offer three types of things. Firstly, they offer help for governments to identify and sequence recovery and peace building activities. Secondly, they also offer support 
for the participation of stakeholders and political dialogue. And thirdly, they offer support uh, for coordination and involvement of key donors and implementers. And typically, a government that is confronted with a serious uh, crisis does not have the time or the means to deal with all those things. So when we start the assessment, we work with the government to see which are the areas that need the most attention and what is the expertise that is required to run the work. During the assessment itself, the government or governments work with experts and in consultation with stakeholders to formulate a recovery plan. And at the end, this plan is presented for agreement. That is the moment when stakeholders also start to coordinate financing and implementation. When I am explaining all of this, this may sound like a lengthy process, depending on the situation. If it's a natural disaster or a tsunami, obviously it has to happen all very fast in a very uh, compressed way. If it is more about a conflict situation, this takes longer. And increasingly, with the UN and the World Bank, we now want to widen the scope of our partnership to work also on prevention and in transition settings. So in transition settings, the assessment methodology we use could also play a key role in helping the government to join up with many different stakeholders to produce uh, and then implement one single plan. And that, very interestingly, is a way in which we can help a state with weakened institutions to gradually take back control of its core functions. Uh, the assessment uh, brings together key donors, international financial institutions and political actors, which in turn can help mobilize funding streams and help to bring about necessary policy changes. In addition to that, Hilde Hardeman calls for flexible planning for short and long-term responses. This requires continuous analysis. For conflict analyses, for example, the EU organizes workshops to bring different actors together. You cannot plan everything from the beginning because you cannot predict exactly where the situation will be in six months, in one year, in a year and a half from now. But during this entire process, you, you constantly need to continue scanning the situation. You continuously need to update your understanding of the situation and what needs to be done on the basis of new elements. And you then also need to be ready to adapt your chain of interventions from rapid response, short term to medium term to long term in such a way that you really can intervene in the most impactful and meaningful way for the people on the ground. We really need to do it in a very organized way, with clear mechanisms, uh, making sure that you involve all relevant actors, that you build ownership with the governments, uh, that you try to very consciously look for complementarity between instruments. We also put in place in-country conflict analysis workshops whereby we bring together every possible stakeholder to really have a, a good understanding of the root causes of a situation and of what we can do uh, to address them. Frank Bousquet from the World Bank also sees a big chance in using the RPBA or a similar approach in transition settings. Why are they so important? Because they really aim to assess the needs of a country as objectively and comprehensively as possible, but also, which is very important, to foster what I call a shared understanding among the key actors involved 
including the government, about the drivers of conflict, as well as about what action to prioritize for recovery. And that's actually a quite big difference compared to rebuilding after earthquake or natural disaster. It's a question of building back better, setting up a process where different groups, people who don't have necessarily the same opinion, talk to each other to also see how we can leverage organization with different mandate. A look at the mandate of the UN or the EU and the World Bank. In many aspects, they are very complementary, but also making sure that we have a prioritization which is effective for recovery. I believe that those RPBA are quite useful tool for transition context. Uh, certainly not the only one and not everywhere, but it serves really as a concrete example of a tool that can contribute to a more, I would say, coherent and coordinated response across the humanitarian development peace nexus. The leadership of the government in those exercises are very, very important. So RPBA have been used in many contexts, for instance, to support post-conflict transition in the Central African Republic, looking also in a case more recently in Zimbabwe, in a context as well of the peace agreement in Mali and the prevention efforts in Cameroon. So to summarize, what have we heard about joint planning and analysis? As with coherence and partnerships, there seems little dispute amongst the policymakers about the fact that shared political strategies are crucial, including not only international actors, but most importantly, between the national government, the UN and other international actors. The key tool for the UN in planning together with national government is the UN Sustainable Development Cooperation Framework. But the UN also uses other assessment and planning instruments, including the Secretary-General's Planning Directive and the Integrated Assessment and Planning Policy. So far, there does not yet seem to be one single joint assessment and analysis tool that the UN, the EU, the World Bank and bilateral donors all use to plan for transitions. In other fragile contexts, the EU, the World Bank and the UN used recovery and peacebuilding assessments. Here, the EU, the World Bank and Germany emphasized that they could also be used for joint planning and analysis in transition contexts. We will also ask officials from the UN, the EU and the World Bank in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in the second episode of this podcast, how their planning processes look like. Having discussed coherence and joint strategies, planning and analysis, we wanted to discuss one last challenge that relates in particular to the organizations that we interviewed for this podcast. Financing. I think the, the financing challenge in the context of peacekeeping transitions is perhaps the most complex and the one with the least straightforward solutions. One key lesson that Russell Nakombe, Daniel Fordy and Rüdiger König already mentioned earlier in this episode was that it is crucial to avoid a lack of resources and funding gaps the moment that the UN peacekeeping mission leaves and is replaced by peacebuilding actors. Daniel Fordy said this challenge is even more complex than researchers and experts used to think. He suggests early engagement in planning for future transitions, which can help to secure adequate financing. In his view, the cooperation of all actors should be expanded to even more actors and consistently include international financial institutions. Just to situate the problem, initially we used to think of the financial challenge associated with peacekeeping transitions as the loss of donor interest and, and reductions in bilateral or multilateral aid 
once a peacekeeping mission leaves. But actually, there's been a lot of research that has instead reframed this problem to highlight that the challenge is twofold. One, it's that the countries that often are emerging from situations where peacekeeping is needed have massive development challenges and limited revenue bases to pursue and implement their own priorities. Second is that peacekeeping missions unintentionally sort of form their own economies, whether it's through international resources and international capital, through tourism and the sort of the entertainment sector, whether it's through all of the national individuals that are employed by UN peacekeeping missions or the businesses that are created to service and support, you know, a multidimensional peacekeeping operation. Nonetheless, I think there are some steps that that can be taken right now, and it requires a really concerted effort from the UN and, and member states and countries that are interested in supporting these populations and these communities and these countries from emerging from these periods of crises. I think First is that it's an issue of coordination, and I think this is where the UN's convening power and impartiality really, really comes to the fore. We recognize that bilateral funding often exceeds UN funding and that humanitarian and development funding often exceeds peacebuilding funding. But the importance is that all of the major parties understand the landscape have a clear understanding of where their interests and complementarity is, and that there's a consistent conversation happening between them. Here, we see a clear connection of the topics that we have discussed so far, namely coordination, joint strategies and planning, and financing, and that this link is decisive for the success of a transition. We asked our experts and policymakers about the most important funding mechanisms they use and how they can help avoid a funding gap. Rosalind Ekombe called attention to a funding challenge. She highlighted that peacekeeping missions are funded from the peacekeeping support account, which only deals with peacekeeping missions. But special political missions, which often form a key part in a transition to replace a peacekeeping mission, are funded from the UN's regular budget. They are therefore in competition with the whole range of other activities the UN funds and, consequently, can often not be deployed as flexibly as they would be needed. This is where Russell and Nkombe emphasize the crucial role of the UN Secretary-General's Peacebuilding Fund, the PBF. It is, as the UN puts it, the organization's financial instrument of first resort to sustain peace in countries or situations at risk or affected by violent conflict. As soon as a UN peacekeeping mission draws down, the funding of bilateral and multilateral donors considerably shrinks at country level. The PBF can try to cushion this financial decline, Rosalind Akombe says. What we are seeing is really the peace building fund coming in as really key because in most cases what we are saying is when missions withdraw even when we put aside the complexities of the funding through the peacekeeping account or the regular budget, the funding that comes from bilateral donors, from multilateral donors shrinks in the country level. And so which means that the funding or financing that is available for peace building we lose that funding, you know, which can lead to what we have said before about the financial cliff after the mission uh, withdrawal. We have seen the PBF play a key role in supporting transition settings. 22% of our funds, of the PBF funds, actually go to countries that are in mission transition, which is really critical. 
in times when you are losing funding or you are having a reduction of funding. Rosalind Nkombe also highlights that to ensure continued financial support for specific issues, such as human rights promotion or the Women, Peace and Security agenda, it is crucial to plan early and cooperate with those UN organizations and agencies that specialize on these subjects. One thing that is really important for me to mention, for instance, is on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. In most cases, when you have a UN mission, you have a lot of resources that are dedicated towards uh, the Women, Peace and Security agenda. What we have seen is that we lose those gains if we're not deliberate in ensuring that we have enough capacity after the mission closes to continue doing that. And that is why we, especially in DPPA and DPO, have started working with UN women much earlier to ensure that they are strong. Similar to Rosalind Nkombe, Hilda Hardeman highlighted the need for flexible funds. She said the EU has short and long-term instruments at its disposal and explained how the EU tries to ensure that the different funding instruments are well coordinated. Now, if you look at the funding means that the European Union has available and has had available over the past decades, we have this combination, on the one hand, quite big, very big means through which we can do a medium to long term work. But we also have much smaller but very flexible tools through which we can do very short-term work very flexibly. And that is the instrument contributing to stability and peace for which the service that I had is responsible. We call this instrument a subsidiary instrument, meaning that if you can do a certain action through the medium to longer term program funds, of which there are many more in quantity, then you should use those. But in those situations related to a conflict or a transition where you need much faster intervention, you can use the interventions of the instrument contributing to stability and peace. And it is then also the idea in many situations that while you have the short term flexible instrument in place uh, that is limited in time and in funding, that you make sure that you prepare your next step and make sure that you do everything that is needed to be able to deploy the longer term, more development oriented assistance when the short term instrument can no longer handle it. In addition to the EU's own instruments, Hilde Hardeman adds the EU provides financial support to international organizations, including, crucially here, the UN Peacebuilding Fund. Now that is the situation looking exclusively from the European Union side. If you then look at the combination with other donors, be it member states or here, I would in particular wish to refer to the UN Peacebuilding Fund. The UN Peacebuilding Fund is a sort of, I would not say totally comparable to what we do under the instrument contributing to stability and peace, but also has this possibility to intervene rather rapidly and flexibly. And it's really very important that this UN tool is provided with as solid funds as is possible. We as European Union are providing a small input because we can better use our funds in complementarity to the UN Peacebuilding Fund, but we make sure to finance a number of very important deployment modalities like the peace and development advisors of the UN, like the resident coordinators, and also the standby mediation facility that the UN has that 
allow us to send a mediator any place in the world within 48 hours is actually also financed by the European Union. And in making sure that we can have the best possible result with the most economic uh, targeted possible use of funds, it's very important that we bear in mind the specific characteristics of every instrument. And here I would like to point to one characteristic that will, I think, immediately make you understand what I have in mind. One of the modalities that we have with the instrument contributing to stability and peace is that we do not need the agreement of the partner government to intervene. That does not mean that we want to do things behind the back of a partner government or against a partner government. But there are many things that we do that if we really would need to have prior formal agreement with the government concerned to act that we would never be able to act on time. The peace building fund for understandable reasons does have the requirement of this agreement. So if we combine actions of the peace building fund and actions of the instrument contributing to stability and peace in such a way whereby we each use our scars means so that we each intervene on that aspect where we can bring the biggest comparative advantage, then I think that we are doing a service to our taxpayers, that we are doing a service to the international community, and that we also, and that's the most important, uh, doing a service to those people on the ground, those communities on the ground, for whom in the end we are doing all of this. These different funding modalities, then, might be one of the most important ways in which the UN, the EU and other organizations can complement each other's work, if they are coordinated properly. Another key actor when it comes to financing is, of course, the World Bank. The newly launched strategy on fragility, conflict and violence from the bank underlines the increasing importance that the World Bank Group attaches to its work in fragile contexts, including those in which transitions from peacekeeping to peacebuilding take place. Franck Bousquet explained the specific role development actors can play when it comes to financing and the three buckets of financing that are included in the 19th round or replenishment of the World Bank's International Development Association resources, short IDA 19, covering the period from July 2020 to June 2023. The role here of development actors is to work with the government on a concrete plan to address some grievances and risk of conflict of violence before it becomes a humanitarian or a security issue. And we have developed specific financing tool with real plan that we can monitor on the substance in terms of addressing key drivers of fragility. So it's very important again to link the strategy element to the actual financing to make sure that you create the right incentive that needs to happen. So the first bucket of this financing under IDA 19 is really the prevention. The second one is to really be able with our financing to continue to provide development support to countries in conflict and crisis situation. Uh, and that's where the turnaround allocation is especially important. And the last one, very important envelope in terms of financing, very much aligned with the new FCV strategy, is to be able to provide some additional financing to address the spillover of conflict especially providing support for refugee and host communities. Speaking from the perspective of a donor country, Rudiger König from the German Federal Foreign Office emphasized that Germany very much welcomes that the World Bank is playing a more active role in fragile contexts such as transitions. 
He also sees the responsibility for ensuring more flexible yet secure funding with bilateral donors. We also need to further strengthen funding mechanism outside existing structures and shift from the idea of aid as needed to permanent structures. As donors, we have to push for flexible structures such as pooled funds to ensure that the funding goes to those best equipped to perform the tasks. In order to make progress here, it is us, the donors, who must cooperate even more closely and support joint and coordinated action over exclusively bilateral funding. And institutionalizing reliable funding mechanism also implies that we need to engage all relevant actors. International financial institutions must play a more active role. It is therefore that Germany welcomes very much the development in the World Bank in this direction, such as the new funding window, which is open to contacts in transition. I think that we have seen over the past years an interesting development in the cooperation between the United Nations and the World Bank, but also with institutions like the European Union and others, to actually address this problem and bring in all of our resources under a strategic political goal to have a greater impact and thus a better prospect of success. So, we have learned that financing is one of the most challenging and complex aspects of managing a transition from peacekeeping to peacebuilding. Not just because donor interest declines the moment a peacekeeping mission leaves, but because, as Daniel Forty outlined, the development challenges are often so immense and because the peacekeeping mission has often created its own economy in the host country. We heard that the UN Peacebuilding Fund is a key mechanism to ensure better financing of transitions. The EU uses different short, medium and long-term tools, including the more flexible instrument for stability and peace. And the World Bank, as evidenced in its FCV strategy, is becoming continually more active in fragile contexts and has set up a new funding window open to transition contexts. All in all, on the issue of financing, the key takeaway is again that financing transitions and avoiding financial cliffs will only work if international actors including the UN, the EU, the World Bank and bilateral donors coordinate their efforts, complement each other and start preparing early. And this brings us to the end of this first episode of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Peace Lab podcast on transitions from peacekeeping to peacebuilding. Transitions have become more relevant in recent years. The political and financial pressure on peacekeeping missions is increasing and there will likely be several more transitions to plan for in the next few years. We heard that those will be even more complex than past transitions, among other reasons because of ever more complex conflicts. It is timely then to review key lessons learned from past transitions. We heard that national ownership and leadership is essential, that there need to be common visions and joint strategies between national governments, the UN and other international actors about the path of a transition. This is because, ultimately, the goal is for the national government to lead and to be able to provide security and basic services to their citizens. 
We heard that for the international actors, close cooperation and a coherent approach are indispensable. So is joint analysis and planning, not only, but in particular, for adequate financing. In sum, if there is one essential lesson from past transitions, it is planning and preparing for transitions cannot start early enough. This sounds good in theory, but what does this mean concretely? In the next episode, we will discuss how to apply these lessons learned to a concrete country case to better understand what the challenges and possible pathways that come up actually look like in reality. To do so, we will use the case of a transition that will happen at some point in the future, MONUSCO, the United Nations Organization Stabilization Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You will hear from the head of the National Oversight Mechanism of the DRC, Claude Ibalonghi, the women's rights activist, Passy Mubalama, the EU ambassador to the DRC, Jean-Marc Chatenier, the senior operations officer in the World Bank's Social Protection and Jobs Africa team, Paul Bans, and special representative of the Secretary General of MONUSCO, Leila Zirugi. So it's very important to push Kinshasa, to push the local authority, to really put in place a framework that will allow for other partners at bilateral level, multilateral level, agencies, NGOs, to then fit in the vision that was endorsed at the national level that is put in place at the local level and working. So for me, what the strategy of transition means is we will not close and leave just between day and night. It's to help the system to continue to work in areas that we are not the best to do, but others can do it without us. We very much hope you will listen to the second episode. This episode of the Peace Lab podcast, Transitions from Peacekeeping to Peacebuilding, was produced by me, Marie Wagner, and Sarah Brockmeier from the Global Public Policy Institute, the GPPI, in Berlin, in cooperation with the German Federal Foreign Office, as contribution to the World Bank's Virtual Fragility Forum 2020. Mathis Römer edited the audio. We're always looking for feedback, so please write us at peacelab at gppi.net or leave us a comment on Twitter at at peacelabblog. This podcast got you interested in PeaceLab? Check out the PeaceLab blog with contributions on German and European policy responses on conflict prevention, stabilization and peacebuilding. You can find it under www.peacelab.blog. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great day and take care. Mm -hmm.